0: So we are catching you in Austin, Texas right now in the time period of you launching your first album.
1: Yes, this is my very first album in the history of ever. I've never kind of, um, harnessed that medium outside of, uh, DJing. I mean, my my twin sister and I have DJed for the last decade and love bringing music together, setting a vibe, setting a tone, bringing songs, you know, and love with beats and, um, and a vibe that just like super high high vibe, but we just, we haven't, I haven't had, um, really, um, a music making, uh, side of me yet. And I think it took, you know, like everyone writes their best albums when they're going through breakup and going through sort of really challenging moments, I think, or like the most peak incredible moments falling in love and stuff like that. So, um, this album was inspired by, um, sort of the uncoupling of my 11 year marriage, um, and just sort of the wild melange of love and how love um, exists in many forms. And it's all okay. And it's all beautiful. I wrote all the songs. I, I, I brought my beautiful um, friend Happy in, who's an incredible artist and creative. And then and then we co-produced it with um, our, our uh, with Gene Navarro Jr., who's like a fourth generation musician. Um, and uh, he co-produced it with me. And it was a phenomenal experience to work with these two to me, legends in the music Fabulous. space.
0: And, and it's not the high pulse beat.
1: It's very much a mellowish narrative, yes? No, we have a dance, we have a dance album and we have an acoustic album. So we have two. Uh, I think I've just listened to the acoustic album.
0: Okay. So I missed the dance album. I need to go back and listen to that now.
1: The dance is the most important, it's like the most textured one because I do all the spoken word in it and it's sort of like, it's got deep beats in it. I would highly recommend you go back and that's the main album. And then the acoustic is sort of like the sweet sort of singer songwriter vibe, but The dance album has both me and Happy kind of going back and forth and spoken word and singing with a super kind of um, eclectic beats. um, And it just makes me want to get up and dance. So we'll come back to the music because
0: that I find is incredibly important. And especially at this interesting time in music to be coming in as a a new-ish musician, um, DJing being a whole nother wonderful side of this. But did you do music when you were a young person?
1: I did. I play. I mean, I was in a few musicals growing up and um, I was in a play at Cornell. I was like, the. I kind of somehow got cast as a lead in a play at Cornell. So I've, I've definitely, and then, um, you know, I've done music classes, like playing the flute and the clarinet. My sister played the piano and we just grew up like with a lot of music around us, um, but it wasn't like a thing. I never sang. I never necessarily wrote music. Um, So this was the first real opportunity to that. just music poured out of me. I wrote 17 songs during this uncoupling process. And it was really just, just pouring out. It was, it was an amazing experience. So where did you guys grow up? Montreal, Canada. Um, Montreal. Okay. Yeah. French Canadian. So I used to speak English like this with a French accent and French is my first language, so my song "Do Less, Be More," the second song on the dance album, um, starts with French, uh, French words. Um, but yeah, French is my first language. Grew up in in Montreal, super French part of Montreal, Brossard, and um, yeah, it's where I spent the first eighteen years of my life before going off to college.
0: Now you, you went in the direction of not just business, but almost hyper entrepreneurial business. Were you the type of teenager who was trying to sell your friend stuff or starting small businesses when you were young? Or what was the teenage you?
1: My twin sister and I and my sisters, I mean, we were just, we were just, we were just athletes. So I played, we both played soccer at the highest level. And we just kind of, we played soccer, field hockey, badminton, we just you know ran track we did all the sports and i think sports is the greatest teacher for teamwork getting up when you know you fall down like if you lose a ball how to like get back in the play really quickly these are all lessons entrepreneurial lessons that were taught and ingrained um in the world of sports in me for since i was 4 years old so um yeah i think i entrepreneur not so much. We definitely entered science fair projects, and definitely like were inventive. And I think one thing that my parents get gifted us with is just the ability to debate at the dinner table. You know, I think you know my mother's from Japan, my father's from India. They grew up in French Canada and Montreal in North America, so we had so many different perspectives on every subject matter at the dinner table. And so, and there was never like, this is the way it is. It's like, this is the way, at least we look at it this way. They look at it this way. Everyone looks at it and they come from totally different perspectives. And so we were just, we grew up debating around the dinner table all the time. And I think that debate lent us to be like, why is it done this way? Wait, could it be done better? Could it be done differently versus just accepting the way things are? And I think when you grow up in a very insular kind of world where it's like just one way, then you often are like, well, this is the way it is in my culture. This is the way it is in your culture. It's Different. Whereas I grew up with like multicultural family that were very opinionated um, in a very kind of French part of Canada where French and English were also in debate. And so there was just debate everywhere, which I think lent itself to being kind of disruptive in thinking.
0: How did your family end up in Montreal?
1: My, so my mom came from Japan, was only supposed to be doing a, you know, a uh, one-year abroad program, I was supposed to go straight back to Japan in 1974. This is when like, you know, like traveling alone as a Japanese woman was not, you know, but but her father said yes he to her going and um her parents. And my dad came from India, um, supposed to come doing a two-year master's program in Ottawa. They both, they both went to school and got, got um, into uh, Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. And he was supposed to go back to India. And after his two-year master's program, but they met, fell in love. Within seven months, they were, you know, married, and then they had three kids in one year. And my dad's very first job he got was in Montreal, Canada, and so we all moved. Oh, they they well they moved with my older sister, and then they had my sister, uh, my twin sister, and me thereafter so they have we're irish triplets so i have a third sister's 11 months older and then it's me and my twin sister so a not risk averse family that's right because some people grow up
0: in households that you know (coughs) do safe things have a safe job do what you're supposed to do you know uh, play your cards right and going to college but you did go to um cornell a relatively traditional.
1: program and what, business? Yeah. I mean, my, um, parents were still quite traditional, even if they untraditionally married each other, the Hindu mm-hmm. Buddhist Asian philosophy of like hard work, you know, studies come first, like, you know, listen to your parents, like obedience is important. And so they sound like we debated, but they also had very like strict you know, Asian family rules too. So and high it, expectations you, then. And of high you guys. expectations of everything. Like everything. If we did it, you just do it a hundred percent. Otherwise you're just like, what are you doing? Um so we were only allowed to leave Canada unless we went to an Ivy League school. That was the rule. And um we basically I mean McGill University is like the Harvard of Canada and that would have cost my parents fifteen hundred dollars a year tuition total. Because in state, in city if you're a resident you get to have basically a free ride. And my older sister went to Harvard Um and we went to visit her in Boston. We're like, freedom from our Asian parents. This is amazing. <laughs> and so we decided to um, apply to Ivy League schools. It was the only option our parents gave us. And Cornell was the very first school we looked at. And the one thing that we found challenging about Boston and Harvard was that it was in a big city like Montreal. So people just scattered and went off the city and just did the city things. Whereas Cornell was in Ithaca, New York where there was nothing else to do, but be in the school and have a lot of school spirit and do school things. And there was like fraternities and sororities and clubs and sports programs and all the school things to do. And so we just decided my twin sister and I decided to go to Cornell. We both recruited there for soccer division one and, we just loved the school and loved the energy, loved the aesthetic of it. It was like on beautiful, gorges. They say Ithaca's gorgeous. So it was like all the waterfalls and it was nature, just in, nestled in nature. So we said yes to the school, even if we forgot that it was freezing cold like Montreal. I was going to say, but you were used was,
0: to the freezing cold yeah, a bit from Montreal. Exactly, but, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So soccer, you were had dreams of being then a professional soccer player.
1: That's right. And so we both played D1 at Cornell, my twin sister, unfortunately, had three ACL reconstructions in college, you know, and which was sad. I luckily didn't tear my ACL or my knee. I didn't hurt my knees in college. but I had chronic ankle injury, but I still got to play all four years in college. And then when I graduated, I did try out for the New York Magic, which was um, the basically the um, the feeder team to the New York Power. It was professional level. It was professional league, but it was sort of the farm team for the power, and so it was sort of like getting yourself ready to go go truly the big leagues, um, and yeah, it was sort of like going up against the best of the best. It's kind of like in football, where you know college football, it's like there's this one level which is amazing, but then when you go to a professional level, it's a whole different different league, and so um, somehow I don't know how, but I mean, you know, I, I was yeah, so I made this starting lineup of the New York Magic soccer team and was ready to quit my job at investment banking. It's a whole story around that. Um, but, uh, yeah, but then first game fresh first game of the season with the New York magic, um, juked out a player, crossed the ball, the striker scored in the back of the net, but then a defender came and took out my knee and I heard the telltale snap and I tore my ACL first game of my, of my New York magic career. And, um, so that put it to a, st- a halt and I had to do the physical therapy. I stayed in my investment banking job so I can still so get a, the best. you were at
0: Deutsche Bank then interning or a, you were?
1: No, I was, in the, I was in the investment banking analyst program. I got a oh, job cool. as investment banking analyst at Deutsche Bank and um, working the real estate investment banking division. And yeah, it was like, you know, cutthroat AF and 100 um, hour weeks that people you know, slept under their desks. It was like that. But then I found out that the near... Well, so 9-11 happened, which was the crazy aha moment in my life. And that I was 22 years old. And, you know, my subway stop every single morning was Two World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to be there um, when the planes hit. But it was the first and only day in my life that I slept through my alarm clock. And it was one of the craziest days of my life. My girlfriend, Laura, and I usually... Meet, meet up, and we would, you know, get tea at Two World Trade, and then she would go to the 100th floor where she was working at, at Aon, and I would walk across the street um, to Deutsche Bank, and 9-11 happened, 700 people, Aon, Kenneth Fitzgerald died which were the two big companies on the 100th, above the 100th floor, and two people in my office died, and I was certainly, my friend was dead, but she had gone down to get coffee right before the first plane hit, so it was like, crazy 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 time in our life and it was then when i that was like the big realization which is the you know the the quote that's been etched into my brain which is the mystery of life is that you never know when it's going to end and the time was absolutely now to make it count and that's when i was like i want i I wrote down three things i want to do with my life the first was to play soccer professionally the second was to make movies and then the third was to start a business and then like off i went on my adventure
0: so Investment banking, you closed that door and then went into filmmaking?
1: Yep. I started working um, at a film production company in New York, but then I kind of got pretty tired of the nine to five because I wanted to play soccer as well. And it was really hard to have a job while doing it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go freelance. I heard there was a thing to do freelance where you can work on sets and you can work on commercials and music videos but you didn't have to necessarily have a nine to five you'd be on set for 12 hours you'd crush it and then you'd be able to have your other time to do whatever you wanted and um it was then though so then I basically tried out for the New York Magic again made this team again made the starting lineup again but then in a semifinal game tore my other ACL <clears throat> and so it was sort of like this is a universe telling me this is not. <laughs>
0: and your body is screaming at you a bit too. Yeah. So.
1: It's like, you're done. Um, so I basically, you know, worked in the film industry and was kind of thinking about my next move was going to be. Um, and it was then when I realized that on sets of commercial music videos, they have these tables called craft service tables where you order where you just basically get food and it's like snacks. And it was like M&Ms and pigs in the blanket and pizza and just crap. And I would just eat that because free was my favorite price. And I was still paying off student loan it debt. It's lower and
0: calorie when it's free also.
1: It's just like, right. And so, <clears throat> and so I um, decided, uh, so basically every night I would eat this crap and I would go home with a horrible stomach ache and realized that I was like, wow, like what is happening to my stomach? Like it's so in pain all the time. And I finally just just Googled it and realized, wow, like the massive processed food industry, the hormones, antibiotics, pesticides, bleach, sugar, like the coloring, all this crap, the preservatives that was in food that was making people become intolerant to foods and like the gluten intolerance and the intolerance to this and dairy and all the different intolerances are going up. And the biggest time I would have these horrible stomach aches and bloating and pain was when I was eating pizza. And that's when I had my big aha moment, looked into the pizza industry. <laughs> I was like, wow, the pizza industry is a $32 billion industry. Americans eat a 100 acres of pizza every single day. There's a huge opportunity here to disrupt it and create the alternative pizza concept using gluten free flours and hormone free cheeses and local seasonal toppings and organic when possible and really enter the first like alternative pizza world, natural world, organic world, farm to table world. This is in 2004 when the idea hit, when back then was Subway was like the main healthy food in town. And, you know, it was like the crap, like people who went to health food stores were considered Birkenstock wearing like dreadlock, like smelly people, you know, who just were like just patchouli types. And it just wasn't- You were
0: still in New York then? You were-
1: Uh Uh-huh. I was in in Brooklyn, living- living... uh living in Brooklyn, New York with my sister. Yeah. And so it was just one of those things where it was just like, wow, there's just like a huge opportunity to disrupt. And basically that's when, you know, I was like, I'm going to raise the money. I'm going to build New York city's first alternative pizza concept and I'm going to make it happen. And it was just like, and actually somehow, I don't know how, but the food network followed me for five months as I was raising money for the business for the first time never raised money day in my life as I was like doing taste testings as I got the lease for the space on the Upper East Side I beat out the Subway franchise to basically get this little space it was a shitty nail salon and nobody really wanted it that's why I got it I had to dig out a full basement full-on dig it out um, which was I had to convert this entire Pink nail salon into a restaurant space. How did you out, like, make sex. a
0: living for yourself while you were doing this? Because you were doing this from scratch. Yeah, did you ha- did, were you were you sofa surfing? Were you uh, no no burning I was through working. your own credit still,
1: cards or no? I was still freelancing in the in the world of in the film world, and um, and that's when I got to like again go on set for twelve hours, make the money that I need to make. And then, and then work in my restaurants and go in the film and work. So that's why freelance was great because I got to really do both. Um, in my book, I so then I wrote, I wrote the book, do cool shit in um, 2013, eight years after I opened my first, first restaurant. Um, or was it, so I it opened in 2005 and the book came out in 20, 2012 or 2013. Anyways, I can't t- tell time anymore, that's um, okay. but, but um The book really talks about how to go from step zero to step one in business and life. It's called Do Cool Shit. And it was really, it really shared the story of like raising money for the first time, getting press for the first time, getting the location, figuring out how to even come up with the idea and like creating the meeting of the minds where I had a bunch of friends who from different walks of life come together at my friend's like, you know, loft apartment. I borrowed my friend's apartment. I had my friend cook the pizza. And then I had different walks of life come come in and tear apart my business plan and my idea, or just come up with a bunch of ideas together. And that's when my whole business came to be and was sort of like wrung wrung out. Was in those these meetings of the minds, and so um, and then raising money. What were like some of
0: your biggest mistakes you made at that first business that was your own?
1: Was getting pressed too early um, was a huge one. I was so excited. I literally like mapped out a route of all the media outlets in New York city and rode my bike and to each one of these media outlets to drop off these little boxes that I made <coughs> with the help of my friends. Um, we made these like nondescript boxes. I've got for 25 cents at like the local U-Haul store or whatever. And, and then my friend's dad gave me um, 50 IV bags from his hospital. He was working, he was a doctor at a hospital and basically gave me 50 IV bags and then I wrote this little note um, with the help of my friend Richard and his friend who helped write the copy. It was like, the perfect food will be arriving shortly. Until then, don't eat anything. Um, my, restaurant was, <laughs> my, my restaurant was called Slice the Perfect Food. Slice was the name of the restaurant. The perfect food was – it was pizza. It was healthy. It was organic. It was sliced up in little sushi-like bites on a sushi plate. So the way we delivered the pizza was like – bite size. It wasn't messy. It was the perfect food. And pizza actually was considered a thalamus food. is a brain food because it has all the food groups, which is why people love pizza so much because it it satiates your entire body if actually done right. And it was presented in a beautiful like like sushi way. And so it was called slice the perfect food. And so in these boxes, we wrote the perfect food will be arriving shortly until then don't eat anything. And then on the IV bags, I put a sticker on it which said, should the lack of sustenance prove to be debilitating, please insert tube into vein. And so it was, the idea was like, don't eat anything until the restaurant opens. If you need sustenance, like use this IV bag. And it was just this funny um, box that my, um, you know, advertising friends and I worked on and made and basically sent the, I basically rode my bicycle and brought them to all the different media outlets. And, They all found this box to be super entertaining versus like a PR book that you just pile up on their tables and no one cares about versus this like really creative, bizarre box. And so they all wanted to come. And so New York Times, Daily Candy, Time Out New York, every major food outlet covered. The Food Network, like I said, followed me for five months. And then the show Recipe for Success came out on the Food Network. We had lines out the door and they made a mistake saying that the restaurant was gluten-free we had gluten-free pizza which is why we decided that we got so many phone calls from people saying that we're well, i'm gluten-free i need this food i want your pizza that we decided to make a gluten-free pizza and then now our restaurants are 100 gluten-free um because it's just a yeah, the restaurants
0: are still open under the name of wild
1: yeah so in 2013 i rebranded it to wild with my friend zach and um and the idea is you know glut- gluten-free local seasonal organic like You know, and the idea is like there's perfection and imperfection and what comes from the wild is already perfect. You don't want to have tomatoes be the same manufactured tomatoes from a factory. Every ingredient, want them to be wild and coming from the farm and different and different shapes and sizes. And that's what makes it as organic and healthy as possible. And so we ran. I was I graduated from slice, the cutesy slice and wild, like from the wild. And it was like more it felt more elevated who I was at that point. And um and we completely redid the spaces and my restaurant Wild is still it's still there today. If you go to eatdrinkwild.com or go to at Eat Drink Wild on Instagram, you you'll see a bunch of food porn on there, which is really delicious food um images. Now do you still
0: own it and did you need to sell out part of it for growth? Because you ended up getting to a a you know, nice number of stores.
1: Yeah, we we got to four locations, um, but we ended up closing two during COVID, which is really hard. Um, But yeah, I mean, think about it—almost 18 years later, my restaurant still stands in New York City. That is almost an impossibility. Like that doesn't happen. So I'm very, 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 very proud of our forward thinkingness and my partnership with my my business partner Waleed. Um, he joined the company. We're, we're we're equal partners. We have investors for the business that we've been slowly paying back over time. Um, And it's just been a labor of love. And it's like I was just there last week when I was in New York with my friends, and it's just so fun to. Still see like the space where I like went to Home Depot and bought the sheetrock and taped it with my you know like like with Andrew at the time and poured concrete in the basement five thousand pounds of concrete to my ex boyfriend like just like all the shenanigans that took to make that place possible is still there like the guts and the spirit of the place is still there which is so cool.
0: And so it's what spurred you to? And
1: it's and it's in the heart of the West Village, which is amazing because it's like. You know, John Bon Jovi's one of his favorite restaurants. Paul McCartney's there all the time. Meryl Streep is there. It's like the Who's Who are constantly in the restaurant because they're all super, super um, conscious of, of health, but they also want to eat health, eat, eat pizza, and so it's it's just an epic location in in the West Village of New York City and on Hudson. On Hudson Street. So there's really been a lot
0: cool. written about your work. Anything from then opening um, the the store in Las Vegas and the support for that, and then there's been a lot written about your um, explosion with thinks in terms of growing the business, starting the business, some of the chaos around the business. Yeah. Um, I'd love to frame that in the learning modality. Uh, sure. What caused you to, since you already had a line of restaurants, to start another company? And then what did you learn from that when you started then Tushy? Because you, you've had starts. and Some people go from a related business to a related business. Yes. And you kind of are kind of thematic, but you really are not in related businesses. Um, how have you decided when to start the next And then what did you learn from the prior businesses and mistakes not to make again or things to think about when you're now launching a new business?
1: Yeah, well, so Thinks was born out of necessity as well. I mean, you know, like having period accidents constantly running from one restaurant to another and was just such a pain in the butt um, in general. But then, you know, it was at a family barbecue when we were in a three-legged race championship my twin sister and I were defending our three-legged race championship title and like running together tied to each other and my sister started her period in the middle of the race and that's when the idea for things came to be was when we were running up the stairs still tied to each other and she took off her bathing suit and started washing them and we both kind of had this like eureka moment of like oh my god wouldn't it be amazing if you can create leak-proof underwear that didn't stain and you can wash them out and they're reusable and you didn't have billions of tampons and pads and up in landfills, which take 500 years to decompose. Like what, what if there was a way to create some, a beautiful pair of underwear Then we brought in our third friend, Antonia to really come and build it with us. And uh, we spent four years developing the technology and putting it onto the world. And then, you know, turns out everyone has period problems if you're a woman and you have accidents constantly. And the idea of like, if you're in the middle of a soccer game, you can't be like, yo, ref, stop the game. I gotta go change my tampon. Or my older sister who's a head and neck surgeon, she can't be like, while well, someone's face is open to be like, face, stay open while I go change my tampon. She all of her underwear are completely soiled because she has to continue through leaks and issues. And and so like in any situation stuck in traffic, you're at a recital. The number of ballet dancers who've called me and thanked me or have seen me and hugged me, they're doing grand pliés and they tampon shoot out of them on a stage, you know, and they just get so, there's so much, there's so many things that happen to so many women. Every scenario, you're giving a presentation, you're talking, whatever it is, um, to have something that gives you strong backup on your period was just a duh But initially, from a cultural perspective, bleeding in my underwear, like that sounds weird. I would never bleed in my underwear. Or or... very
0: retro, because that's, of course, what, you know, our parents, or I'm older than you, our parents, parents, parents did, um, is that you would be washing everything out. There wasn't the whole concept of a disposable system. Um, Yeah,
1: that's right. And so there was just like this whole, to me, obviousness, but it was still this weird disgustingness of it because people were so used to tampons and pads. And so that they were just like, oh, like you wash them out, you bleed in your underwear. That sounds weird. And so there was a lot of stigma associated with how we presented the product. And I think what was so amazing about my experience with my restaurants to then building Thinks was like the thesis around how do you change hearts and minds to trying something new that would otherwise be like, healthy pizza? I'm a Joe's Pizza kind of guy. Like I would never eat healthy pizza, like blaspheme and... You know, and so like, how do you get people to lean in to something where that they would naturally lean out to? And, you know, when I stood outside my restaurants for years, handing out little pieces of pizza, you know, getting people to try and taste it, you know, cutting up little pieces and be like, taste some pizza, like healthy pizza. Like no one would stop. They would keep walking like gluten-free pizza. Like no one would stop. And I would see yummy pizza. And people would stop and I'm like, okay. And then while they were eating it, I bet, did you know it was healthy? Did you know it was full of, it was gluten-free and organic and local and seasonal. And they would say, wow, that's amazing. Let me get a menu. So I got to teach people as they were trying something like health, yummy, but like, so I learned to meet people where they are. And I learned from that experience to like, not to try and say things that were too scary or too academic or too clinical or medical or whatever, But to meet people where they are and to do it artfully, beautiful pizza bites, beautiful restaurant space, appetizing experience that got people to lean in versus lean out the right languaging, how you say something in a way that gets people to lean in versus lean out. So took all those lessons and from things when it was like period underwear, it was like how do we tell the story where people can lean into something totally different that their parents and grandparents were not doing, but their great grandparents, maybe the rags or whatever, but it wasn't like, no one knew about bleeding it under, it was still completely new. And so it was like, how do we use artful aesthetics? How do we use accessible, relatable language? How do we, of course, have the best in class product that makes you feel sexy and beautiful, doesn't feel like a pad, it feels like you're just throwing on a regular pair of underwear and it actually works and you actually forgot that you had your period, that you are just, whoa, I forgot that I have my period. This is a revolution that I can go about my day and not actually have it be a period but be a comma and keep moving forward, right? And so there was like such a revelation for women when they were using it for the first time. And then it just blew up. We had this controversy within New York mTA where they basically banned our ads from the subways because they said you can't say period in the in a subway in the most progressive city in the world, New York City. And so we basically turned lemons into lemonade and 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 went after the mTA and said, "Hey, you know because they said, what if a nine year old boy sees these ads?" and we were like we want everyone that, girls have their- <laughs> that they can yes it's like then it's and a good thing and he knows that it's not just his sister and
0: mom um you Thanks. know
1: and that well, I'm they, shift on here because of it yeah
0: cuz absolutely um because yeah. you've done so many other things as well and so you're, you're definitely known With for things you then became you 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 um before thinks or early in thinks became an author and came back to being an author yeah what why and then what did you bring from your entrepreneurship into being an author and how did writing help with the rest of what you were doing how does how does being a book girl um,
1: help with the rest of it How does it tie together and then of course starting tushy which i'll get into after right after that but basically do cool shit was written and the subtitle is quit your day job start your own business and live happily ever after and um this book Um, was written because I'd read all these books, like Richard Branson's book, like Losing My Virginity, um, or, or, you know, it's basically about, yeah, it's about um, basically, like, his story of building Virgin, Virgin Records, Virgin Galactic, Virgin Airlines, his whole Virgin story. Um, And reading, you know, Tony Shay's book, Delivering Happiness, and all these epic entrepreneurs' books. But it was like, it never, they never gave me the blueprint or then I would read these entrepreneur books like how to go you know like from step zero to step one but then like by page three your eyes are crossed because it's so heady and so thick and it's a business book and you're like ah so like I wanted a fast page turning book that told me about the stories but then gave me takeaways like what email did you write to get your first you know meeting of the minds to happen what email did you write to get your first investor to say yes to even meeting with you What did you even? How did you get investors to even write your first twenty five thousand dollars check, let alone the first million? Versus like the Richard and Tony's like I raised my first million dollars, but you're like, but how? What did you say? (laughs) Like when you have no experience in it, like what do you do? And so there was like this this huge like, huh? Like there was this gap of like storytelling and then the how to. Like I wanted a storytelling book that taught me how, but in a way that it felt like a story that I wasn't like, ugh, I have to like sit and read this business book. So it kind of. Merge the two, which is why Do cool Shit's like a s- successful book to this day. Like people come up to me and told me I became an entrepreneur because of this book, which is really cool. Um, my second book, Disrupt Her, came out after um, really building Thinks and then starting Tushy. And in between, I had this like crazy, another controversial experience where I realized that people who are trying to disrupt the status quo, you know, have takedown experiences. And it's like very, very real that society wants to maintain its form and anyone trying to shift society forward and move society in a new way will get rockstone at them, like trying to get like taken down, tall poppy syndrome at its finest, like all the different things would happen in order for them to, for society to stay status quo and I think I didn't really, I wasn't prepared for that to have society be used against me for self-gain as I was growing things exponentially. So I had a really, really painful, challenging experience building my, my company um, we don't have a ton of time to talk about it. But I wrote a whole Medium post about it. So and you can we'll put actually... that in the show notes, the Medium yeah. post. <laughs> yeah. and the update
0: in the Medium post you've added as well um, are yeah. all good piece of the puzzle to have in the show notes. So some people can For... sort of see the nuts and bolts of, of what happened and, and your response to it.
1: Yeah, because it was like a wild time. I was pregnant when this crazy, this crazy story came out that was so wild and false and it's just unbelievable that people would just want to see someone who's trying to support women. They just wanted to see them take it taken down and just didn't care about checking with me and be like, hey, is it true? Like no press called me to be like, is it true? Like it was just like a takedown piece. And I was just like, wow, it was a wild, wild time. And I was pregnant with my son, Hero, at the time. And I was so scared of having miscarriages. And it was just, a, uh, you know, so I kind of was just like, you know what? When they go low, I go high and I'm going to stay high. I'm going to, you know, like I had a whole storyline with my board, which is a whole other story. They want to control the business because of the money. And I didn't realize more money, more problems. I didn't well protect myself well enough. And so they use this crazy storyline as a reason for me to step down as CEO. It was just a wild, 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 wild tale that, you know, I could go on for. Um, But so I stepped down and I basically focused on just like making sure my baby was, okay. And I had my beautiful baby. It was so magical about this experience. And like the universe always gives us the gifts that we need. Um, for me, it was really around being able to be a mom for a year before I really, st- I wrote Disruptor the first two months of my baby's birth, actually, while he was sleeping and breastfeeding and passed out on my boob. I would just be typing because I had so much to say mm-hmm. about the world of disruption and and like the world that we live in and how Society was created by people no different than you or I, and've set the way it is like this is the way it is in society, and it's like who says like who decided that this is the way it is like let me disrupt the way we think about money, power, business, like friendship, career, like just the sticks and stones of feminism patriarchy and 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 just like all the things that we kind that of keeps us in line as a society because we're so scared to also be told we're wrong or, or maybe, you know, like in, in back in the day, if you're ostracized from this community, you could die. And so people want, want to stay in line because they don't want to be ostracized from society. But for me, because I grew up with, parents who let me debate and question everything. I grew up building things and got so much pushback and a lot of cheerleading and, you know, people being like, oh my God, your products have changed my life. I can eat pizza for the first time in my life and feel good. And I wear your product and I feel like I feel liberated and I feel like I can do anything now. And with, with Tushy, like it's changed my life because I don't have hemorrhoids or UTIs or yeast infections or fissures or itching or BV, or I have a, you know, and any, just feel healthy. When i go on a date like Tushy using a bidet has changed my life and I didn't realize it's, you know, I can have one affordably. That that similar
0: to period products being, being a, a past century product that I I travel in other places and going to go to the Middle East and here's a wand and a hose. What the heck do I have a wand and a hose for? But here you've really stepped up. I mean, you are running essentially three enterprises right now, right? You're running, you're running Tushy. You're still part of the restaurants, but you're running Tushy. You're, you're a parent. And you're a musician.
1: How well, are you know, dealing? and writing with... my and wrote my book while I was and doing it, wow, all of that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, and but then, presently you know, you're you're presently, juggling yeah. three sets of things. Um, as we come to the end of the conversation, what would you suggest other people take
1: away? Because we don't even have time to even talk about <laughs> Tushy. We'll put links in the show notes. Um, well, let me let me say one thing about Tushy, and I think it's really please, really please. important to really talk about it because you know, like when I built Thinks and had that that the you know the, the huge like. A US realization of like, wait a minute, there is a better way to manage my period. And that, you know, it's like, it's the same thing with Tushy. When I started Tushy, similar thing, right? instead of periods, it's poop, right? So final frontier. And it's sort of like, the whole question was, wait a minute, we're talking on the phone right now through these airwaves and we're flying on planes and we're doing all these things. And yet, poof, when you step back in the toilet, we're back into the 1800s. Why? Because it's taboo to talk about the unmentionables and i'm just going to go there and do the thing quickly and run out as if i was never there meanwhile I'm not asking wait a minute is there a better way is there a cleaner way is a healthier way is there a way that makes me feel more confident if i'm going on a first date or if i just want to feel clean it's like it's it's a night and day difference using a bidet than using dry paper i mean the analogy i always give is imagine if you jumped in your shower and 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 like didn't use water, didn't turn your water on and just use dry toilet paper to clean your dirtiest bits. Like people would call you crazy, right? So like, why are we doing that to the dirtiest parts of our bodies? And I think it goes along with the book Disruptor and things and everything I've been through where it's like, we just follow what we've been doing without questioning, wait, I have chronic UTIs or I have chronic hemorrhoids, or, I have chronic itching, or I have chronic dingleberries if I'm a guy with a hairy butt, you know, whatever. It's just like, could there be a better way? You know, the answer is yes, but there's so much shame and stigma and, and like, ah, associated with it that there's no, no innovation in it. And so for me, like my whole book of writing Disruptor and do cool shit and creating products that are seen as unmentionables or initially like, you know, leaning out, like leaning into those things can actually create massive transformation. You can actually build big businesses. Both companies are nine figure businesses. You can actually like shift culture and support the planet. Tushy has saved over 5 million trees to date. We're getting flushed down. We have funded the build out of clean toilets for 60,000 families in India. We have funded resoiling soiling and re-so- reforestry projects all over South America. Things has helped millions of girls go back to school with menstrual products. I mean, we are agents of change through a disruptive business. Like that is possible too, right? So the whole idea of writing the books and the music and everything that I'm doing is to make you question and ask yourself, wait a minute. The and, and, and let me touch on the music for a second. The music was written when I was going through my divorce and like really like in the uncoupling process wrote 17 songs and they poured out of me. And it was really not about like, sad woes me. It was like the massively beautiful melange of love. And that Andrew and I had a successful decade-long marriage. The last couple of years were challenging, but all in all, we had an incredibly successful marriage. And sometimes marriages have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And just because we went through a divorce, it doesn't mean it was unsuccessful. It means it was perfect for its chapter. I'm in a new chapter now. And like, what is this, what does love look like? What am I yearning for? Like what am I calling in? Like what do I crave? Like what didn't work? What was I sad about? What was I screaming about? Like what was but what was I so like? ah, Like about right? Like what is love? Like love is everything, and so like the, the this this whole the arc of the music is actually tells a story of my entire life through the lens of love, but it's really about disrupting, like, you know, like the uncoupling process. And love is still magical and beautiful even in that process, you know. So, I'm well, Mickey, stop that.
0: we've covered. A piece of the waterfront. We readily could talk with you for four or five hours. You've done so much. Anything as we close out that that uh you want to make sure we mention and then if you if people want to reach out to you, who would you like to reach out to? You?
1: Yeah, I mean, um first don't go to tushy.com. It's a very graphic anal porn site. <laughs> go to hello tushy.com if you want to check out what we're up to. We just launched a new beautiful website. I'm so proud of it with our incredible team. Um, and if you want to ask me questions or talk to me, it's always on Instagram at Mickey Agrawal on Instagram. It's the best place to find me, to ask me questions, to talk to me. Um, if you want to see all of my projects, including my books and my companies and all my stuff, you can go to just Mickey and check it out. Um, and, um, yeah, I think those are the things, the type of people who I want to, you know, I'm hoping to, you know, um, listen and reach out are people who are really in their questioning of their own lives and the disruption of their own lives and the updating and upgrading a next chapter or entering in and 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 not wanting to follow the status quo and wanting to start and create whatever it is in their lives whether it's music or business or a book or anything that they're like I'm an imposter like I'm an I haven't done any of those things before and yet I've given my heart and soul in all of them without, and, and, and just saying like, cool, like if someone doesn't like it, they won't listen to it and I'll do it for myself. And I don't care what anyone else thinks. And in the meantime, I'll have ups and downs and takedowns and come ups and people loving me and people not liking me and all of it's okay too. So, you know, I think that's just the way to think about creation is just creating for the sake of creation, not to be liked because you need something in the world that you want to see that there's this burning yearning desire to have it out in the world that's enough to see it in the world so thank you and I'm going to go
0: listen to your dance tracks for the afternoon and uh, appreciate you being on this show thanks a lot
1: thank you so much
0: Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools and the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of creative innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and, and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024.